biggest issues that you see in Scripture is, is this idea of the fear of God. I mean, I mean, the Bible says in Psalm 111, verse 10, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's not that there aren't a million other things to learn about God, but he says, you've got to start with the fear of the Lord because that's the beginning of wisdom. And, and so for me to be wise and begin to understand God, it starts with a healthy understanding of fear. And, and because in the church, there was this trend where people were saying, yeah, that fear of God, that, that's kind of old school, you know, this hellfire brimstone. We, we don't really do that anymore. So in church, we started going, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't, let's talk about the other areas of God. But if we skip the fear of God, we won't understand the other areas. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're starting a new series this week, and it goes for the next six weeks, and, and, I'm trying to get that feedback, uh, we uh, are inviting you, if you haven't signed up yet, outside there's some sign-up sheets for different Bible studies, and none of them are full. So you can go to any group you want to go to. We kind of, we put the addresses down so you can find one that's kind of closer to where you are. And, and that way, do you hear that feedback there, Travis? I appreciate that. What a guy. We, uh, I could talk quieter, I guess, or I could move. It's the monitor, I think, that's too close to me there. But, oh, wow, that hum went away for a second. And the door just shut. Uh, I'm not easily distracted. You probably know that by now. The, uh, uh, the study that we are doing is called, Who is God? And somebody asked me, I can't remember when it was, we were talking about the Trinity. And I kind of just glossed over some of the different heresies over the years of the church that uh, wrong ways of viewing the Trinity. And somebody came to me afterwards and said, you know, you never really, we never really talk about the Trinity. You talked about all the things that were wrong, but you didn't really take time to say, well, what is the correct view? Well, that, this study really helps to understand the correct view of the Trinity. The Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, is so difficult to understand how you can have three distinct persons and one God. What um, we're going to do in this study is we're going to start by focusing on God the Father, and then we'll talk about the, Holy, the Son Jesus, following Jesus, and then talk about the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, we didn't talk about the Holy Spirit at all. It was kind of the Trinity was Father, Son, and some other guy who will not be named uh, because we didn't want to talk about the Holy Spirit. My wife grew up in a church where they talked about Jesus and the Holy Spirit and another God not to be named. And, uh, and so it was kind of, a, we, we kind of have came from different backgrounds. What you and I need to understand is we talk about one God and that is an un, unchangeable thing Whatever you believe about God, you have to know that there is only one God, that there is not more than one God. And so whatever belief you have about the Trinity 
It cannot change that. It cannot change that there's only one God. So when we say the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, when we say all three are God, they are not three gods. It's still just one God manifested in three persons. Now, that kind of goes, I don't really know what to do with that. And, and that's okay. Because God is unknowable in his entirety. But he is knowable in what he has revealed to us. And so we just, all he is asking of us is, it's kind of like when your parents tell you when you're younger and you, when you ask a question and, you say, and they say to you, well, all you need to know is this. And the reason why parents are saying all you need to know is this is because they know you can't understand the entirety of everything that's happening. You know, you know, you know it's like when your, ga- or your car needs gasoline, you don't need to know the entirety of how, how the internal combustion engine works. All you need to know is when that little needle gets to E, that you need to put fuel in the car. And sometimes that's all you need. Now, if you're a mechanic, you need to know more. But God gives us what we need to know in order to do what he put us here to do. And more will be revealed as we are capable of understanding that. And understanding who he is, is we're, all, we're only going to focus on what he's given us. There's going to be so much more that we can't touch on, can't get to, and so forth. But today, we're going to focus on one In fact, for the next two weeks, we're going to focus on one aspect of God. And that is that he is to be feared. That he is to be feared. And when we talk about fearing God, it's not the same as being afraid of God, although there is a component of that. There's a, there's a reason to be afraid of God, just like there was a, f- a reason to be afraid of my father when I had disobeyed him and did everything that he told me not to do and then got caught. There's a reason to be afraid of him because of the wrath that was getting ready to ensue. There's a reason to be afraid of God if you are in opposition to God, but we still fear him when we love him and he loves us when we are walking with him. And, and the idea is, is that one of the reasons we walk with him, one of the reasons we obey him is because we fear him. Because it's a healthy fear. It's a healthy respect, a healthy understanding. It's not that I'm afraid, trembling, scared, afraid. It's that I understand who he is and who I am in comparison to who he is. And so I walk in that manner. When I don't walk in a manner that says I understand who I am in comparison to God, that's when problems begin to burst out. And we do that a lot. We, we live as though God is not who God says he is. We make decisions like God is not who he says he is. We, we act through our days. When, when you are told not to do this or you will die, and you do it anyway, then that is not a healthy fear of God. And, and that's what we want to look at today. Look at what Scripture says to us about who he is, just so that as we're walking through the day and Satan comes along and says, hey, you don't have to pay attention to God with this. We remember, oh, wait a second. No, I do need to pay attention to who God is because Jesus said these words. He says, don't fear the one who has the power to kill your body because that's what people can do. You know, people, we, we get afraid of people. We fear people. We respect people because of the power that they have over us. Sometimes we respect the devil and fear the devil and fear Satan because of the power that he has over us. Sometimes we fear ourselves because of the power we have over ourselves and the control we have over ourselves. But Jesus says, don't fear people who have the power to kill the body. And that's all those. I have the power to kill my own body. You have the power to kill my body. Satan has the power to kill my body. 
Jesus says, don't be afraid of any of those. Fear the one who has the power not only to kill your body, but to cast your soul into hell for all eternity. Because you're an eternal person. And there's more at stake than this, just this physical body, this heart stopping beating and this brain stopping working. There's more at stake than that. There's your eternity at stake. God holds your eternal home in his hands. God holds our eternal destiny in our hands. And part of the temptation of this world and part of the thing that gets, draws us in is the idea that um, this is all there is. And so we begin to live for this and make decisions based on everything matters about this, but it's not about this. This is just a small part of the greater life that God has for me. But if I do not fear him in this life, then I will not fear him and live with him for all the life to come. And so, um, so we're going we're gonna to look at the day and a lot of verses today. So we're gonna, if it gets too fast, you say, wow, he covered so much material. How in the world am I going to unpack all that? Well, here's an idea. Go to that small group study. <laughs> and, uh, and you're going to unpack it even more, and you'll have time to ask questions about it. That's the whole idea. Everything we're going to talk about today is going to be involved in the studies that we're doing uh, tonight and through the week. And, and if you meet with a group and so forth, just and you can't meet on every night, if you look and say, nobody's meeting on a night that I can meet with, let me know that. Because we'll find a, another time, we'll put another group together that meets on a different night that makes it more accessible to you. Most people have Sunday nights available, so that's why we, um, most of them meet on Sunday night. But let's pray together as we get ready to unpack God's Word. Father, we just thank you, God, for how amazing you are. Father, we thank you for you being you. And God, just pray this morning that uh, as we look at what you say through your prophet Isaiah, Lord... Um, We'll be excited about it, maybe a little nervous about it. Father, I pray that our hearts and our minds can understand it. And Father, as we begin to see what you're trying to communicate to us, that it does one thing, that it draws us to you and gives us a greater reverence and awe about who you are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40 is where we're going to be looking. Now, cool thing, and this is just for me more than you, but um, in my daily Bible reading, I went through Isaiah 40 this week, and, uh, and, and it was cool that, that my, I think about how my readings lined up to where I would be reading through the same passage as I'm going through God's Word that we would be talking about this week, and it would, and the stars align and so forth, but just a greater evidence of how amazing God is. But um, in Isaiah 40, Isaiah is dealing with a group of people, the nation of Israel, Judah, that is not being faithful to worship the God they were called to. And here's what's happening. People need to see something. They need to see something that's, they need to have something they can touch and feel to put their faith in. 
they've been told about how amazing God is, and they take this idea of God, and then they project it into an object that's been created with hands. Now, God, you may not realize this. Maybe nobody ever told you. Maybe you never really focused on the Ten Commandments. God doesn't like this. He absolutely doesn't like it. Like the cross up on the wall, these things down here, these plates and so forth, the pews that we sit in, this building and so forth, whatever is in this room, even the windows, whatever, you have to be really careful not to project praise, not to worship, not to give credit to any object for your salvation, for any joy that you have in life. You need to understand there's a God behind those things. We have a natural tendency in our flesh, in our disobedience to God, in our sin nature, to want to worship people or things or things. And we create things and we hold things and we'll have things in our house and so forth. And I see trinkets in people's houses and shrines that people put up and so forth. And, and they're doing it because they need something that they can see or touch or feel. We've always done this. And God has never liked it, has never liked it. He wants us to understand he is an untouchable God except for the person of Jesus Christ. He wants to understand he is not, we are not able to see God except for the person of Jesus Christ. We are not able to spend time, I don't know, if there's no physical God to us except Jesus, and he's not here right now. So the best representation we have of Jesus is the church, the body of Christ, and we are his ambassadors, and it's his spirit within us, but we are not to worship one another, but we are to understand as we come together collectively that God is in our midst, and we worship him, the invisible God. He's on, that can't be touched or projected. So we, we have to be very careful about creating symbols or things or whatever, and, and whatever, a banner or whatever you come up with that says, oh, I'm, I'm worshiping that, I'm bowing to that. I get, I get really, I'm just gonna tell you, I get really weirded out when people put up a picture of Jesus and then they bow before it, or they put up a cross, and they bow before it. The reason is, is because he says specifically, you are not to have any type of graven image. You're not to have any created, man-created thing. And if a man painted that picture, if a man built that statue, if a man uh, created whatever it is, that cross, took wood and put together that cross, and you're bowing before it, giving praise to it, even if you say, no, I'm praising the God behind it, he doesn't, he doesn't like that, okay? He doesn't like that. And so this is, this is, but this is what the people are doing. And so when, we talk, when you hear Isaiah talking, he's, he's trying to help us understand who God really is. And so in verse, um, it start, the first thing, first point. So he, we have seven things that Isaiah is going to tell us. Seven things that he's going to tell us about who God is. And help us to understand when we worship him, these are the things about him that we are worshiping. These are the aspects about him. First of all, that God will come to his people. God will come to his people. What this means is, is that he is not, like, the, like again, the cross, pictures, whatever. Those things can't do anything. And we are not worshiping a God who we are never going to meet. 
We're not worshiping a God who's never going to come to us. We're not worshiping some far-off being who we'll never see, who we'll never know, who we'll never spend time with. No, he, he may not be with us now in the person of Christ. And it may only be a spirit whose presence is here, but at some point, he will come to us in physical form. In physical form. We will see him face to face. We will see him face to face. This is what he says. Zion, and that's just the people of God, the nation of God, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Well, hold on. Yeah. Yes. Go up on a high mountain, Jerusalem, herald of good news. Raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength, and His power establishes His rule. His reward is with Him, and His gifts accompany Him. He protects His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them in the fold of His garment. He gently leads those that are nursing, that are nursing. You know, I, I don't know if you have ever been bullied or, or been in a situation where you have uh, been afraid or scared and been taunted and, and you were when you were little or whatever and you were looking for a big sister or a big brother or your mom or your dad or somebody who you really looked up to to come and rescue you and they weren't there. I um, We were at the aquarium uh, last week when uh, with my grandchildren and um, and there was a little spot where you climb under where the penguins are and, and so forth, and she's two, and, and so Nori. And, uh, and she, start, she would start to go in, and there were a bunch of kids there or whatever, and then she'd freak out, and she'd rush back to make sure we were still there because she had to go through the tube and come out, and we're on the other side. And so she was going in here, and she had to come out here. She didn't have enough faith to believe <laughs> that we were going to, even though you could see the entrance here and exit over here, she didn't have enough faith to believe when she got all the way through there, we were going to be at that other place. And, and, and some experiences I've had growing up, I just, I know people said, you know, you're, they're not coming for you, or they've forgotten about you, or they don't love you, or whatever, and you start to doubt. You start to doubt whether they really are going to come back for you that they really do love you enough. And God is no exception to this. One of the reasons we turn to other gods, one of the reasons we turn to other things is because we begin to doubt whether he's ever going to come back for us or not, whether he's real. I mean, it's, it's, hard. I mean, it's hard to believe that the God who we can't, I mean, the point of this meal today we're going to partake of is that we remember his love for us, his body given for us, his blood shed for us, so we remember the one who gave us this meal to partake of is going to come back. Jesus came and made himself real to people, and people were so excited because they get to see and touch and feel God for the first time. And then he left. And we're just being told by the people before us, oh, he, we saw him. We're told by our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're told by them, People that we've never met who lived 2,000 years ago, we're told by them, oh, yeah, he's, we saw him. We did. We touched him. We, we, we experienced him, and he's going to come back. And we're just taking their word for it. But we're also taking the word of God for it. 
part of fearing God is just understanding this realization that he, I mean, think about how many times during the day you need to remind yourself, he's coming back for me. He loves me. All the pain that I'm feeling right now, it's grieving him as much as it is. It's the fact that, I mean, think of when, this is what I was going with my grandchild. It's hurting us as much as it hurts them when you see the fear in their eyes that they've been left or abandoned. We haven't left or abandoned. I can see her the whole time. But she thinks she's been abandoned, and there's the fear and, and the tears and so forth. And, and God is the same way. He, when we get afraid and we're like, God, where are you? And why is all this happening to me? And why is my world falling apart? And why is everything collapsing around me? And why am I so alone and abandoned? And why is this all crushing out on me? And, and tears begin to flow from us. He's standing right there looking at us, just wanting. But if he, if he could, he would. Reach down and take us out. You know, we lose a loved one. We lose a loved one. When I lost my dad, I remember this is, this is how I comforted myself. Because I'm, I'm thinking something awful has happened to my dad on the surface. You know, I, I know enough about the word, know that, you know, he goes to heaven or whatever, but it's more than that. It was my father in heaven looking at my dad going, enough, and grabbed him. I'm taking you home. I'm not going to leave you there anymore. I'm not going to let you go through this anymore. I can't bear it. And he takes it into his arms, holds him. And now that faith is real to him. It's face to face. It's done. You know, I'm, now I'm here, you know, and I'm here until God says enough. And then he takes me home because he has a home prepared for me. He's, he's just watching me, you know, go through the pain and experience it. And he's leaving me. It's like, okay, he's hurting, he's hurting, he's hurting, he's hurting. He's scared, he's scared. But I'm going to let him, I'm going to leave him because this is how he gets to know me. This is how he gets to know, this is how he fulfills what I created him to do. This is how he does what I designed him to. So he fulfills his purpose. But there will come a point when he says, okay, that's good. That's good. You got it. Out. And I'm done. That's why Paul said to die is gain. To live is Christ. To live is to do what Jesus was put here to do. He did the same thing with his son Jesus. He, let, he put him, sent him to this earth, and he's watching, and he's watching, and he's watching, and Jesus is suffering and suffering and pain and pain, and the Father is watching, and it's like, I've got to leave him because it's not done yet. He's not done yet. He's not done yet. And as soon as he says it's finished, boom, done. Second thing. God alone is the powerful creator. God alone is the powerful creator. Look what he says in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills and the scales? Think about it. If you've ever been to the ocean, you see how massive the ocean is. What he's saying is who can measure how much water is in the ocean? I mean, I mean you ever, have you ever made a cake? or cooked anything where you had a recipe and you had measuring cups and you'd get a cup of flour or a cup of water or half a cup of oil or whatever and you measured out and you get it right there. Can you imagine creating not just a cake but the world? And, and in that process, in that process, 
God knows exactly how many drops of water in the ocean. He got it exactly right. He knows exactly how much the mountains weigh. He got it exactly right. He alone is capable of doing that because he made it. That's how amazing he is. There's nothing to chance with him. It's not like he just threw stuff down and it just happens. Now he measured it out. He measured out, he weighed it, and he got it exactly as it needs to be. That's the thing I love about science is the more they study how the universe is put together, it's how meticulously structured it is, down to atoms and, and, and you know, atoms and molecules and so forth, eventually, and cells that eventually become us and everything around us. Everything is in balance. And who, does, who put it there? God put it there. It is an intelligent design. He is a creator. And so we reverence him because he is alone. He alone has the power to do this. God alone is infinitely wise, infinitely wise. Look at verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or gave him his counsel? Who did he consult with? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? You know, when you and I are looking for knowledge or we're looking for, you know, when you, when you pull out your phone and you Google something, and Google is amazing, I'm going to say, but somebody, it's like Wikipedia, somebody had to write that. Somebody had to get that information somewhere. And they got that information from somebody else. And they got that information from somebody else. And they got information from somebody. And you think, well, you keep going back. Where does the source of all this information come from? God. God himself is the source of all this information from the very foundation, before the foundations of the world. He knew all the answers to these things, and he simply gives it to us, and we share it with one another, and it's just passed on through generation to generation. That's how it works. God cannot be compared with anything or anyone. He cannot be compared with anything or anyone, meaning there's nothing. The government can't be compared with God. That's why he doesn't like us to give credit where credit is not due. That's why the Word tells us when you think oh, this, this president did this or the Congress did this or this, the Supreme Court did this or whatever, all these things, and we, and we get to thinking, oh, if we can get, I know this, the thought process, if we can get all the justices that we want on the Supreme Court, then everything will be good. Right. Surely you do not believe that. But understand, God says, all the people who are in all these places are there, only there if I want them to be there. The whole world watched in a confirmation, whatever, and was so enraptured on the votes and, that, and the power that these people had to make or break this decision. God always wants us to remember they do not have that power. He has that power. And it doesn't matter. I mean, I want you to think about it. all the people, all the senators who voted during the confirmation hearing. Where does their breath come from? Who makes their hearts beat? Who gets them up in the morning and gives them safe passage to where they are? Who sustains the world while all this is taking place? Only God does these things. Only God can do these things. He cannot be compared to anything or anyone. And look in verses uh, 15. 
He says, Look, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust in the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon is not enough for fuel, meaning the cedars of Lebanon, all of them burning, is not enough for a sacrifice for God, or its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are considered by him as nothingness and emptiness. Who will you compare God with? What likeness will you compare him to? To an idol? Something that a smelter cast and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver welds for it? To one who shapes a pedestal choosing wood that does not rot? He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over? Meaning, and just take that one step further, people who build buildings, who build cities, who make things, is this where you're looking to God? This is nothing compares. There's nothing. You can't make something to compare to someone who is unmade. You can't create something to someone who is uncreated. It's not possible. So, he cannot be compared with anything or anyone, and God alone rules over the earth. God alone rules over the earth, meaning that there are no governmental entities. I mean, we, we get a bad, I remember growing up in the, the Cold War, and, and Russia had all these missiles, and we have all these missiles, and still we think about these things still today. But it was like people are building bomb shelters and people are, are, are trying to find a way to survive in case of nuclear war. And they're thinking about, and they always say this, you know, this person has the power to destroy the world in his hands. No. Nobody has that power except God. Look what it says, Isaiah says in verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth irrational. They are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. These people that we give so much credit to for having so much power. You know, I, I think about, uh, you know, I, when I would teach fifth and sixth graders, I would, I would, we would be studying Alexander the Great and I said, I want you to think about something. How many of you know who Alexander the Great is? And none of them knew. Oh, you know. You're past fifth and sixth grade. And you think all the people that have lived in Greece, all the people that lived in the world during that period of time, we don't know any of those people. We don't know what they did. We don't know how wonderful they were. But in their time, in their places, there were mayors and, and, and people in power and, and principalities, people over cities, people over countries, people who over regions and so forth. And the person who was not just the greatest person in the world at the time, but one of the most powerful people who has ever lived. People are like, I think he did this. He's, a, he's just a, a passing thought. Inconsequential. 
I mean, yeah, historians love him. But when you think about the greater aspect of everything, I mean, the Jesus we're talking about today, so much more influential than Alexander the Great. I mean, there aren't two and a half billion people on the planet worshiping Alexander the Great. And what did Jesus do? He was in one of the smallest countries. I mean, Israel is a third the size of the state of Kentucky. He had in this small nation, in a small place, in a disrespected people who were thought to be insignificant on the planet at the time. The Jews were not notorious for conquering the planet. And yet, one of them did. And he did it without, a, without an army, without a military, without war training, without ever killing a single person. In fact, kept people from being killed who rightly could have been killed. In fact, he himself was killed. But here's what he did that Alexander the Great couldn't do. When they killed him, he came back. Let me tell you, in case you're wondering what God to worship and what God to serve, serve the unkillable king. That's the one. Pick the one who can't be killed and who can live forever. And Jesus goes one step further. Pick the one who not only can he not be killed, but has the power to raise you from the dead. That's a good choice. God alone rules over the earth. God's power sustains the stars in the sky. Verses 25 and 26, he says, Who will compare me to or who is my equal as the Holy One? Look up and see who created these. He brings out the starry host by number. He calls of them by name because of his great power and strength. Not one of them is missing. You know, I think to myself, you know, you look and look at the stars in the sky, billions of stars, and it, I don't think it's by accident there are billions of stars and there are billions of people, and to realize that God knows each of those stars by name. Now, if I just started trying to think of names, I would spend my entire lifetime, I do not have enough years of life to name each of the stars. And by the time I named them all, I couldn't remember what I named the ones 10 prior to this one. And so it's such as incomprehensible. Yet God knows all of our names. Not only does he know all of our names, he knows all of the stars' names. And he gives us the stars just to look up. And that's why he said they're just there. I mean, what purpose does a star have? I mean, it's a huge ball of gas that doesn't really do anything except have this little flicker of light. What purpose? God put it there. We know for this reason to remind us that he's there and that he knows he put them all in that place. So that I look up and go, wow. It's kind of like sunrises and sunsets when they're so beautiful. And how many pictures can we possibly? You think you've taken every possible picture of a sunrise that can be taken. And then you go on Facebook and go, well, I guess there are more. I mean, does anybody post last year's picture of a sunrise? <laughs> I took this picture back in 2002 of a sunrise. And I just want to keep it because the ones now are kind of stale. We don't do that. Throw it to get better all the time. It just, just amazes us. And why, are the, why does he do it like that? Just so we go and go, he is amazing. 
And if we know that He can put stars there and make planets do what they do and make the universe all that it is, then we can remember the last one. God's power sustains His people in their weaknesses. As frail as I am, as small as I am in comparison to the universe, God has the power to sustain me. Look what he says in verse 27. Jacob, and why do you say, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert, and Jacob and Israel mean the same thing? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my claim is ignored by my God. He's saying, why do we say, God doesn't love me. He doesn't hear my prayers. Why do you say this? He says, do you not know? Have you not heard Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth? He never grows faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He's trying to sum up everything we just said, all of the prior six points. He will come to his people. He alone is the powerful creator. He alone is infinitely wise. He cannot be compared with anything or anyone. He alone rules over the earth. His power sustains the stars in the sky. This God gives strength to the weary and strengthens the powerless. Youths may faint and grow weary, and young men stumble and fall. And this is what he's saying. He says, young people with all their physical abilities and all their strength and all their power and everything that they got going for them, they still get tired. I've witnessed this firsthand with my 23-year-old son who thinks he's all that in his physical prowess and peak. And I tried to tell him constantly. I said, look at me. Look at me because this is what you're going to (laughs) become. What you got now, you ain't going to keep it. (laughs) It's not going to stay with you, no matter how much you try to hang on to it. You're headed this way, big boy. It's going to happen to you. It happens to all of us, and this is what he says. Those things don't stay with us, but those who trust in the Lord. Take an 80-year-old Moses who trusts in the Lord will renew their strength They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Meaning we will overcome with God's power. That's how amazing he is. The invitation this morning... ...is to get us prepared to eat this meal... And the question is this, how can we get a vision of God like this and not be changed? How can we see how amazing God is and how powerful he is and how awesome he is and it not make us different? And the only answer to that question is, is you don't see it or you don't believe it. Because if you can see God this way, and believe God is this way, it it changes you. It changes the way you live. It changes the way you think. It changes who you are. And this morning, the people who partake of this meal are people who've been changed by what this meal represents. Jesus gave us this meal. We didn't create it. It's not something man came up with to say, let's find a way to worship God through bread and juice. Jesus gave this to us. He says, I want you to, when you eat this bread, when you drink 
of the fruit of the vine. I want you to remember my body given for you. I want you to remember my blood shed for you so that you could have eternal life. I want you to remember how great I am. I want you to remember that I put the stars in the sky. I want you to remember I'm going to come back for you. I want you to believe that I love you. And today, if you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in him, if you've never put your faith in him, if you've never believed in him, I want you to today. He's calling you and saying, you can trust me. I am, I am this great and almighty God. Can you not trust me? So trust him. And if you've already trusted him, then remember why you trust him. Remember why you put your faith in him in the first place. Remember it's because you say, well, I'm not sure God loves me. I'm not sure he has eternal life for me. It starts with this understanding that he died and he resurrected from the dead. And if you believe that, then all the rest, if you'll just simply seek out him first, if you believe that God loved you enough to send his son Jesus to die for you and to shed his blood for you so that you could have eternal life, if you put your faith and trust there, then all the rest comes. But start there. Remember, he died for you, shed his blood so your sins could be forgiven. And now, based on that faith, obey the rest. Pray with me. Father, we just thank you, God, for how great and amazing you are. And pray, Lord, that through your word, Lord, we have grown a great, got a greater understanding of who you are and how amazing you are. And, and Lord, pray this morning that um, as you invite us to your table, Lord, that we'll take a moment to examine ourselves. Lord, we really believe you. We really trust you. And Father, if we've been struggling with that, but now, right now, we're willing to trust you. You're willing to forget everything that came before this. You're willing to forgive everything we thought up to this moment. You're willing to forgive everything we've done up to this moment. You're willing to wipe it all away if we'll just trust you now. Because now we remember, oh, yes, you do love us. You do remember us. You are the great God that we believed in long ago or maybe believe in for the first time today. But whatever the case, may we come to you and put our faith in you in Jesus' name. Amen.